Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. Um, we're going to start in verse 19 and go through verse 24. 1 John chapter 3, verse 19. Yes? People talking to me or leaving? Oh, the students can be dismissed? Yeah. <laughs> All right, whatever. Um, yeah, finishing up the chapter. Finishing up chapter, chapter 3 of First John. And there's only five chapters, so we're really, you know, going along. Got a nice clip. Verse 19, John writes, And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandment abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Uh, pray with me, please. Jesus, we come to you again um, as a praying church. We come to you again and ask your anointing on our understanding of these uh, these words. Uh, I pray that your spirit would speak in the words that I speak and around the words I speak in spite of the words I speak. Um, we pray, God, that you would be known and that you would make yourself known to us now through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 I'm going to be honest. John makes things difficult sometimes to understand. Um, when, he's, when he's easy to understand, he's hard to obey. Um, so maybe we should be thankful that sometimes he's hard to understand. Um, but he's, he's, he's difficult to follow sometimes. You know, he goes back and forth between apparent opposite points, you know, like sin and, and righteousness, and he just bounces back and forth. Without, without seeing how he weighs opposing ideas, sometimes it can seem like he contradicts himself. I mean, in one verse, he's like, I have a new commandment, which is not a new commandment. It's an old commandment, but it's brand new. And you're like, come on. Like... What am, I, what am I supposed to do with that? And uh, in one moment, he'll say, like, everyone sins. I sin. You sin. We're all sinners. And if you say you don't sin, you're a liar. In fact, you're making God a liar. So don't say you don't sin. And then he says, if anyone sins, the truth is not in him. And he's of the devil. And you're like, you are not making friends here. But he says, he says, I'm writing these things so that you can know you have eternal life. And you're like, well, I'm... I'm hard, it's hard to track with you, Mr. Apostle, sir. Uh, there, there's some textures here that you really have to slow down to, to understand, much less enjoy, right? And this is one of the passages. We come to one of the passages today that where it can be hard to trace the thread, maybe difficult to trace the ideas, but I'm going to do my best. We'll do our best. The major themes of this passage at the end of chapter 3 are condemnation and confidence, so already we have those opposites in one hand and you're like, okay, I got to track with you. Condemnation and confidence are really, it's condemnation versus confidence because they are not on the same team. Uh, these things are opposed to each other 
And if you want another word that conveniently starts with C that ties it all together, you can have commandments because he's going to say that commandments, keeping the commandments makes all the difference between condemnation and confidence. Um, and that commandment is mentioned in, in verse 23. The commandments that give confidence, that defeat condemnation. It's a very Sunday school, kindergarten level Christianity. It's like, what's, what's the commandment? What do I do? Believe in Jesus and love each other. So when it gets down to like, what do I do about it? John is very, very simple. But arriving there, he, he takes the long way to get there, right? But the commandment that we're left with at the end of this, which is where I'm going to start, is believe in Jesus and love each other. Now we're going to see how we get there, how John gets there. Now, just like in uh, chapter two and the beginning of chapter three, we're talking about truth, but always, always, always in the context of loving people. For John, this has always been the way it is, and this had better be the case for us, always. In this specific passage, John has... Um, John was just talking about love and now he's talking about truth, not as a separate thing or even as the other side of the coin, but he's, he's, they're overlapping so much there's a full eclipse. Okay, love and truth are never, for John, in contrast to one another. In fact, you could confuse one for the other. He's talking about truth because truth has been defined as a characteristic of real love. I mean, he, he says, God is love, and he wrote, Jesus say, I am the truth. For John, it's an overlapping reality, truth and love. Uh, we are conflicted, confused beings that have hearts that war against themselves, you know, and we draw lines and we categorize things, which can be helpful sometimes and unhelpful most of the time. Um, and we looked at this before. In verse 18, where we ended last week, it's worth memorizing, worth repeating to yourself throughout the day. John says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. The way you love is in truth. We looked at this before. We saw that love is expensive. It's dangerous. It's not something of dreams. It's something that gets under your fingernails. It's something that costs you your blood, your sweat, your tears. It's something that must be done in deed and in truth, not just thought about or written about or believed in, but acted upon. It's deed as opposed to wishful thinking. It's truth as opposed to a figment of your imagination. Imagining you love people, in general people, Humankind, Imagining you love people in general is very different from loving specific people intentionally. Individuals with actual acts of actual love instead of just like warm feeling. And this action, this truthful love, is an action that gives evidence of a heart that is abiding in Christ. Now, this has already been shown to us a few different times, a few different ways in John's writings, right? Walking in the light is fellowship with God. Fellowship with God is evidenced by walking in the light. Deeds done in darkness, evil deeds, show that a person is not walking in the light. And John provides these kind of litmus tests for a believer to check your heart and see where you are, where you stand with your Lord. Loving your brother is evidence of loving God. You can't hate your brother and love God. Or rather, you can't hate your brother and say you love God and expect us to believe you. That's more his angle, actually. That's, that's not how it works. So John has provided these sort of tests, these standards, these, uh, that, that you can measure yourself by and see the evidence of God's Spirit working in your life. 
And in the perennial discussion of faith versus works, John's position is yes. Faith works. It just does. And faith, which had been such a major theme in John's gospel, now makes its appearance in his, his letter in verse 23, proving his theology has remained essentially unchanged. And it's important that we see and value this element of John's theology, belief. Faith is essential. Uh, the Reformers' creed of salvation by faith alone can be seen through John's writings. It's important to read, that, uh, read it that way because certain verses in John can be lifted, isolated, and taken out of their greater context, the greater context of John's writings and thinking. And then you can get the idea that salvation is by keeping the rules. Like when he says, no one who sins knows the truth. Or he says, keep the commandment, and that's it. You could even take some of his strong, strong language about how everyone is a sinner and then remove it from the rest of his writings and come to the conclusion that because sin is so universal, it's not that special or serious. Now, that would be falling off the other side of the horse, right? Both of these ideas would be wrong and dangerous. And it's in these verses that we see a bit of a balance struck between John's teachings on moral behavior and the doctrine of Christ's forgiveness and, and our, the command that is, is given to simply believe in the name of Jesus. Sometimes, many times, our heart can get lost in the midst of this kind of conversation because John does give us some top-shelf theology right? Some thicker books that are usually dusty at the top, you know? John, John knows that what he's talking about can get just theoretical and push off to the side. And, this, and he knows this and he addresses it. And so he brings these back to address the heart. Now, you know that the heart is a tricky subject to talk about or to even think about, you know, because you read in scripture, the heart is deceitful, that it's wicked, that it is wrong. We also read that the heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it where he wishes. We read that there's hearts of stone that need to be completely removed, and you need a heart transplant with a heart of flesh. And then Jesus still says to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So there's, there's all sorts of different angles on this subject that we see in Scripture, and it can be complicated. Again, I think John knows this, but knows both the wickedness of the human heart and the potential for the heart to be a beautiful meeting place for you and the Lord who loves you and who dwells there. And it's really interesting because what we see in verses 19 and 20 is first that the heart might provide you with much needed confidence, and that's good. And at other times, the heart can lie to you and condemn you, and that's not so good. Look at how he addresses the heart issue. Verse 19 says, And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. There's that confidence. In this verse, he's saying, you'll look at your actions, referred to in um, verse, verse 17. He mentioned, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts his heart up, how does he have the love of God abide in him? But then he says, we love in deed and truth. So he says, when you're acting like that, when you're loving in deed and truth and you're helping the poor and you're, you're not shutting up your heart towards those in need, that generosity is evidence of the spirit of God in your heart. And, and you can look at your actions and you'll see that you're loving people. Like, maybe not like you did before you were saved. There's a change. You'll look at your actions. You'll see that you're loving people, not just in word, but in deed and in truth. And when you see this, you can take heart. And you can thank God 
that he has worked in your life and is working in your life. And you know what? You should. You should rejoice that God is changing you. You can do this without a drop of arrogance. You can, you can rejoice that God uh, is not willing that you should be who you were before. He's changing you. And part of that change is how you treat other people and how you love other people. So when you see that God has allowed you to serve other people and then you do it, praise him. Praise the Lord that he has brought you into the ministry of Christ. So John says, when we love in deed and truth, when you're walking, when you're living a lifestyle of caring for others more than yourself, you can know in your heart that you are of the truth. That's a cool thing in John where we see love is the evidence of truth. And there, those two truths are holding hands, right? But then in, in verse 20, he says, if our heart condemns us, well, God's greater than our heart and he knows all things. Those times when you are able to see God's sanctifying work in your life, maybe they're few and far between, I don't know. But when, when you can see in the rear view mirror, so to speak, that God worked and he worked in you, and maybe he worked through you, and that's awesome. That's great. Sometimes we don't feel great though. Doubt is a real thing. And you, you know that we struggle and we sin and we fail and we think things that we wish we never thought. And we say things that we can't take back. And we feel certain ways that we just think must be ungodly. And when we, when we get back up, we're not sure where we stand or even if we should stand. And we compare ourselves to the standard, which is perfection. And we echo Romans 3.23 perfectly. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we stop short at that truth. And I think every one of you here probably knows in your bones the truth of verse 20, 1 John 3.20. Your heart can condemn you. Your heart can be your worst enemy. Your own heart can speak words of condemnation to your mind. And we need to praise the Lord that the condition of our souls isn't dependent on the feelings of our souls. Sometimes you're not going to feel saved. <laughs> okay? You're not going to feel like you think a saved person should feel like. It's like, this. is this sainthood, really? <laughs> and sometimes... You know, there are days if, you're at, if you ask yourself, if I were God, would I save me? The honest answer has to be no. John is aware of this fact. This is not new. John is aware of this fact as he highlights the importance of righteousness, the seriousness uh, of sin, the dangers of walking out of fellowship with God and hatred to your brother. He talks about the vital importance in the life of the believer to reject evil and, and and um, the lies of, of the flesh and Satan. And he talks about the importance of staying close to Christ, abiding in Christ, in truth and love. He's aware that there are going to be some people who look at that high calling, the high standards to which we have been called, and they're going to despair. And they're going to say, I, not me. That is not for me. I can't do that. I can't do that. Like, I've I've met people and I talked to them for like four minutes and they seemed pretty perfect to me. And, and I, I'd fall way below that standard. You know, I read the Bible and I see how Christians are supposed to behave like Jesus, be holy as I am holy. And I know me. I don't think I can do that. Like Chesterton, he said that the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. You know, it's just like that looks hard. And he says, when your own heart condemns you, 
Christ doesn't. That's good news. I, I think, and this is just me imagining stuff, but I think that one of the more beautiful scenes at the proverbial pearly gates or whatever that's going to be like has got to be the moment when there are people entering heaven who are surprised to be there. Right? That is going to be beautiful. People whose hearts have condemned them over and over and over again but they receive mercy from Christ who does not condemn them. Christ to the woman saying, where are your accusers? Where are they? Well, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. This whole grace alone, faith alone thing is biblical, but the fact is for centuries, Christians didn't have that framework to think in, you know, and Christ was still saving people before they could print five solas and put them on a t-shirt. Okay? Christ was still saving people. And, and the scarier fact is that today, in many places where Bibles are available, people don't read them. And Christ is still saving people. And the result, even in places where the gospel has been preached, is that there are many, many who have, who live with the nagging doubt in the back of their minds, no, not me, not me. He would not want me there. And I'm not just imagining things here. This isn't fiction. This is a real problem in the minds of real Christians. I know this because John is addressing it in his church and the Holy Spirit saw, saw it fit to put this in a book for the church today. John is writing to people so that they may know they have eternal life. That's what he's going to write in chapter 5. That's why he's writing these things. Why would, there be, why would that be an important thing to write a letter about, put in and then save in, in the canon of Scripture? unless the alternative was a real threat, not knowing that you have eternal life. No wondering, doubting. You know, where, where do you think that the medieval version of doctrines like purgatory came from? It's from the awareness of sin that leads to the heart, the heart to condemn and say, no, not me, not me. I am not ready for that kind of holiness. Uh, D.A. Carson he, he preached a sermon on faith using the Passover and Exodus as an example. And, and he says to imagine two men on the, on the evening of Passover in Exodus, right, in, the, in Egypt there. And all the plagues have happened, uh, but now this is the big one. And the angel of death is going to come through unless you sacrifice a lamb, take its blood, and paint it on the lintels and the doorposts of your house. And then you go in with your family, and you eat standing up with a belt on your waist and the, the rod in your hand, and you eat the entire lamb. And if you don't, you burn the rest of it, and you get ready to go. And that's what's coming. And there's two guys, neighbors, right? Jewish neighbors, and they're, they're, they're getting ready for evening. And they've done their stuff. And the one, one guy says to the other, well, aren't you, aren't you worried? Like, this is a big deal. This is scary. Like, angel of death. Like, that has a ring to it. I don't, I don't know. Aren't you afraid? And his friend says, no, I have full confidence in God to save me. And I've slain the lamb. And I've painted the doorpost of my house. And I believe that God will save. Don't you? Aren't you following the instructions that this guy Moses gave? And the first guy says, well, yeah, I, I did it. And I'm, I'm doing it. I'm following the rules. You know, I, I painted the doorpost. And I, uh, there's the, the blood and stuff. And then we're going to have lamb tonight. And and that, that's fine, but I, I just don't know. Like, I have my doubts. This is scary. This is, is it going to work? Like, it seems weird. It seems strange. And his friend says, shakes his head at the weak faith of his neighbor, and he says, bring it on. I trust in the living God. And so when the angel of death comes through Egypt that night, which man lost his son? And the answer, of course, is neither did. 
neither lot because, as uh, D.A. Carson points out, death does not pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercised, but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. And he goes on to say, like, the blood of the Lamb is what silences the accuser. Revelation 12, 11, it says that they overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony. And, like, they, none of them compare, like, who believes the best? Like, you know, the, the, Satan is not overcome by the whims of an emotional heart. He's overcome by the blood of the Lamb, which is a reality both in heaven and on earth. Now, we need to be careful with our language here. John talks about the heart condemning. And the heart can condemn you. And he says, it doesn't matter. Jesus doesn't condemn you. But we have to recognize that condemnation is different from uh, it, its, its opposite, really, which is conviction. Conviction is different than condemnation. Conviction is a statement about guilt. Condemnation is a matter of sentencing. Okay, A criminal is convicted. They did the crime. A criminal is condemned. They will pay for the crime. They're sentenced. Conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit. John 16, verse 8 says he convicts of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. When you realize that what is wrong in you is wrong, that's okay. And again, you can praise the Lord because that's the Holy Spirit bringing to your awareness that there's things that he wants to change in you and make you beautiful. Okay, conviction is, is good. Uh, it's the work of the Spirit. Um, it's different than condemnation. When Peter preaches on Pentecost, it says that his hearers were cut to the heart. That's conviction. Condemnation, like I said, is passing the sentence. It's taking the knowledge of sin, which may be accurate, factual, true, and then imposing punishment on the guilty, in this case yourself. And you do not have the right. Condemnation is when you take the truth of your condition, con yeah, the truth of your condition, the sin in your life, and then conclude that you must suffer a certain way or perhaps that you are beyond forgiveness, that you are past mercy. This is the work of the devil. To condemn yourself, of course, you're, you're just playing for the wrong team there, the accuser of the brethren, but to condemn yourself is unjust. The criminal doesn't get to choose his sentence. And to see that you are a sinner and then proceed to say, therefore, I am condemned. There's no hope for me. That's ridiculous. That's so arrogant to be the criminal convicted, to be able to tell the judge, you know how much you deserve. To say, therefore, I am condemned. That's unjust because we read in chapter 1, verse 9, that Christ is faithful and just to forgive. He defined justice as forgiveness on the basis of his blood. Forgiveness is a matter of justice. So John is saying, look, 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 guys, I want you to love people. And if you've got stuff, share it and love your brother and walk in fellowship. And when when you observe your life, and you should observe your life, examine yourself, and you see, am I growing in love towards people? And if you, a Christian, are able to answer, you know what? Yeah, God has taken me a long way. He has allowed me to serve other people, and I rejoice in that. Then, you know what? Take heart. The Lord is working in you. It's okay to note progress and take that opportunity to give thanks to the one who deserves the credit, right? Rejoice in your conversion. Rejoice in your ongoing conversion, your sanctification. But if you examine your life and you say, I don't think I'm getting anywhere. I don't feel like I'm growing. I'm not seeing progress. And maybe, I mean, maybe I've just been faking it. And this whole Christianity thing just isn't for me. It doesn't feel like it's working. 
To that, John says, who cares what you feel like? You aren't the judge. That doesn't matter right now. And I believe it's with this person who is self-condemning. It's with this person in his mind that John returns to the commandment in verse 23. He says, and this is the commandment. You whose heart condemn you because you broke that commandment and that one and that one and that one and that one and all the sins, I've done them all, you know, and that's you. He says, okay, you whose heart condemns you, look at this. This is the commandment that we should believe on the name of the son, of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he, has, as he gave us commandment. Return to the source of your salvation, your faith in Christ. And then you who would condemn yourself, once you return to his work rather than your own and believe in the efficacy of the cross rather than your own efforts, once you get back to that, start loving people. Now, once again, the purpose of John's writing is not to condemn. It's not to push people to the edges by showing them the, the greatness of their unworthiness. That's not why this letter is written. John's purposes are to fulfill your joy. That's chapter 1, verse 4. To build your confidence in eternity. Chapter 5, verse 13. And we, we have to be true to the text. We have to be faithful in following John where he's leading us. And there are verses and passages that are there to make you examine yourself. Last week was one of those. We had one of those sermons. Uh, and of course, someone came up to me last week after hearing the part about loving your brother as an essential part of being a Christian and just said, well, I guess I'm not going to heaven. And fortunately, it was said with tongue firmly in cheek, but there are passages that exist that give you a healthy doubt to the self-satisfied, if you're self-satisfied. They give a healthy doubt, um, you know, if you're, if you're self-assured. You say, well, well, maybe I should return to the source of my salvation. Last week had that kind of passage. This week, we don't get that kind of passage. This isn't that message. There are sermons where I might make you wonder if you're really saved, but this text right here isn't the place to do it. Here we see John give comfort and encouragement to those who are growing and even to those who are not. And we see John return to a place that we've become familiar with by now after studying the gospel of John, and that is to return to a simple faith and the power of that simple faith. There are two ways where he brings us back to this belief. One way in verse 23, which we read at the beginning, saying that the command is to believe in Jesus. And the other is in verse uh, 22, where he touches on faith in regards to our, our prayer life. And what we see in verse 22, and I know we're going out of order here, so you might need to read this a few times afterwards to untangle what I'm giving you. Uh, but what we see in verse 22 is sort of a commentary on some of the verses in the Gospels about prayer and faith. In verse 22, read it. Um, then I'll give you some verses from the, the Gospels to make a connection. And he says, And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Okay, this idea of ask and you'll receive, that's in the Gospels several times, right? Four times in John, Jesus says, Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Uh, but in Matthew and Mark, there's an addition to these promises. There's the condition, and that condition is faith. Matthew 21, verse 22 says, Whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you will receive them, and you will have them. So do you see here how John is saying the same thing? Matthew and Mark say you will ask, and when you ask, believing, you will receive. John says that we receive because we keep his commandment, and then in verse 23, he specifies that the commandment is to believe. But he includes another requirement. He says we receive from him because we do those things that are pleasing in his sight. 
And then verse 23, he adds love to faith. The commandment is to believe on the name of the Son of Son, on his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. He's saying these things to build confidence in the weak uh, and those who aren't so weak anymore. Um, he's saying, you know, your heart might condemn you, but Jesus doesn't, and we know we're in him if we believe in him for the forgiveness of our sins and then follow him where he's going, which is in loving other people. Belief is connected to truth, and for John, truth and love are always holding hands. So when he mentions faith, he adds love. And as he's leading his little children in a sort of hopeful self-examination and beyond self-examination, while encouraging them that Jesus is the one doing the work and he's not condemning you, he is also leading them to maturity. He's leading them to faith. And like James, the faith John believes in is a faith that works, that proves itself in its walk. It's a faith built on prayer. Why else would John mention this extravagant promise that we would receive from Jesus, the things that we ask for, unless he wanted to increase the devotion of the church and improve their habits of prayer. So he encourages them to seek the Lord in hope and in faith and with an eagerness to put that faith into action through loving other people and serving them as Christ served them. Sometimes it takes me several times uh, reading through John's writings to finally get any connection. And I don't think I read this one enough. I don't always understand at first why he says what he says when he says it. Uh, sometimes he's disconnected and random, but as I consider what he said before about how love is imperative, you have to do it. How loving one another is a sign of walking in the truth and in fellowship with God. And he's talked before about how there is hope for the one who sees progress in their life in this area, and there is hope for the dejected who's blinded to the progress that Christ is doing in their hearts since Christ's work is far more powerful than theirs. And he's leading this, his, his little flock, his little children, to a place of confidence in their prayers. And leading them to prayer makes all the sense in the world. This is one of the dots, two of the dots, that I can connect. This passage makes me think of Jesus' story of the two men praying, one of the Pharisee who prays loudly, lifting up his hands and the other bowed down, feeling dejected, kneeling, saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says that it was the second man who goes home justified. So John addresses the saints who aren't feeling saintly. And he says, your prayers are powerful. Your prayers, the prayers of the one whose heart condemns them, your, your prayers, he hears them. And if you believe, not in, the, not in your own faith, that's not, we don't place our faith back in our own faith. Not this, the snake eating its own tail or like an Escher sketch, you know? And it's like, no, that's not what you, you put your faith in the blood of the lamb. You pray putting your faith in him. Martin Luther said that whenever Satan reminded him of his sin, he said, it encouraged me to no end because I would re simply be reminded that Christ came to save sinners. It's like, yeah, yeah, so I'm a sinner. Great, God justifies the ungodly. I'm on that team. John says to the ones whose heart condemned them, reminding them that, that it is such broken hearts as theirs to which Jesus draws near. But this call to prayer, it, it applies to those who are not self-condemned too. Uh, the one who John references in verse 19, he says the ones whose heart assures them because they, they've witnessed the change in their life. What should that person be doing? Praying. They should be praying. In the presence of God, there's no ch chance of their progress being turned into a sort of arrogant self-satisfaction. Oh, look at me, how much I'm growing. Like, you might talk about like that to yourself or to other people, but you, you don't talk like that to God. <laughs> um, 
And if the person is truly walking in this new love that has been poured out into their hearts by the Holy Spirit, what better place for them than to be at the feet of Jesus, interceding on behalf of the ones they love? And the request that, requests they bring before the Lord will be others-focused, and the Lord delights in answering those kinds of prayers, those selfless prayers. When you pray for someone else's needs, it is pretty common for God to lead you to the place where you are in some way providing for their needs. And it seems like John might have this in mind, saying that the prayers are answered because you walk in love. In other words, it's like, yeah, he's going to answer your prayers because you're going to say, Lord, help that person, and then you're going to go help them. Um, it's kind of a play on what James had already written at this point. You, you pray for those without, and then you answer the prayers by giving them what you have. <laughs> the one who is growing in their love for the church is a person that will be growing in their prayers for the church. But what about the other kind of saint? Let's return to them. The one who is at risk of this self-condemnation, who John corrects and leads back to simple faith. Well, they, they need to be in prayer too because it is in the prayer of the contrite heart where Jesus will come and tend to the weak. A bruised reed he does not break and a smoldering flax he does not quench, meaning that he restores things that everyone else would see as broken and past repair. He fans into flame that, that which appears to have grown cold. He splints fractures. Something else will happen when you are in prayer that will restore your confidence if it is lacking or maintain your humility in the midst of your joy. When you go to the Lord in prayer asking for your needs, you will um, probably, maybe even unintentionally, you will follow Christ's directions in how to pray when you address the Lord as your Father. Most likely, you will pray to God, and at some point in time, in an extended prayer, you'll, you'll address Him as Father. That may not seem very important. Maybe, well, that's just the way I was raised, or it shows up in the Bible, so that's the words I say. But no, there's more to, more to it than that. Whether or not you follow uh, you know, the King James and say, Our Father who art in heaven or not, you will be addressing God as fa the Father who loves you. And even if you are wondering, Why are you cast down, O my soul? When you notice that you are calling God your Father, please take heart. That is evidence of the Holy Spirit of God living in you. Galatians 4, verse 6 and 7 says, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Do you see this grace? You are calling God Father only because the Holy Spirit has been placed in your heart, in the body which is His temple, where he causes your soul to address the creator of the universe as your dad. Romans 8 says the same thing. Paul writes the same thing in Romans 8, 14 through 16. It says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And, and it could be with this in mind that John closes the chapter. He gives one more um, evidence to his readers of the conversion of their souls. Look at verse 24. He says, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. The Spirit of God lives in you. Even if your heart condemns you, the fact that he lives in your heart shows that he's not really worried about what you think in this regard. <laughs> Verse 24 returns to the commandment of verse 23, faith and love. 
These are evidences of the Spirit. The fruit is love. The fruit is faith. See that in Galatians, right? But again, the, the presence of the Spirit in your life is primarily evidenced in the simple fact that you can go to the Lord as his son or daughter. A son who is growing, who will resemble his father. Kids can't choose to stunt their growth, and they wouldn't want to if they could. A child will simply grow, and before they know it, they will look more like their parents than they might wish. <laughs> but they don't get a choice, because they were born into that family. You've been born again yes. to a living hope. The Spirit of God is in place in your heart, and this is why you can address God as your father. And as your father, you can take have full assurance, full confidence that you will grow up, because that's what kids do, and you will gain a resemblance, a family resemblance to your father, whether you like it or not. Yeah. And your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins is evidence of this, and your love for people around you is evidence of this, and your confidence in prayer is evidence of this Holy Spirit. It is evidence of a work that has been done and has already been accomplished that will save you whether or not your heart is confident of this truth. So take hope. You can't have enough of it. Take hope. Place your faith in something greater than your own heart. Trusting in Jesus is more than trusting in trust itself. Have confidence, even if your own heart condemns you, that the Spirit in you is working an eternal weight of glory. This Spirit, who has taken up residence in you, will see to it that the good work begun in you will be finished. Please pray with me. Father, we come to you as sons and daughters of the King. We come to you as both adopted and born again. We come to you with the confidence that you give your children. We pray that you would, that your spirit in us would gently lead us in the truth. We welcome conviction because we know that where you break, you bind up, and where you cut, you heal. We welcome conviction if you, if you are showing us the things we need to repent of, we repent of them, Lord, and we shun condemnation, recognizing that you are both the judge and the justifier. You justify the ungodly. That counts as us. And we come to you with full assurance of faith, saying Jesus paid it all. We ask that we would walk in such a way, in love towards one another, in care for the needy, so that we can give evidence to our own fickle hearts as well as to the world around us that Christ is in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory, and that in seeing our good works, they would glorify our Father in heaven. We glorify you, Father, now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.